This episode of Ayahuasca Anonymous is brought to you by the Institute for Mindful Children. Check out the Institute's new 13-part webinar for Mindful Comebacks, Surviving Recess. We all know this one. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can only traumatize me. See how they made that more mindful? Or what about this one? I'm rubber, you're glue. Because you're mean to me when I'm in my 20s, I'm going to date someone that resembles you. And last but not least, I know you are, but what am I? That one didn't need changing at all. It was already mindful. to Ayahuasca Anonymous, stories of ayahuasca and other plant medicines. So it's been a while. This podcast will continue whenever the stars align. For on my part, I have been completely overwhelmed and busy. Part of that is I have a new four-month-old puppy. And boy, is it so rewarding? It's the hardest thing I've ever done, taking care of another life and teaching her things and teaching her to deal with her emotions while I have somewhat learned to manage mine. It's interesting because just a few months ago, I was thinking about doing ayahuasca again, either going to South America or I was thinking maybe the next phase is I find a local community and then I found it. I found the place to do ayahuasca in my Midwestern town and I had an opportunity to do so. And it's funny how life works sometimes where the thing that you think you want when you actually get the opportunity or you get it, you go, hey, I didn't really want that. For me, I realized I was looking for the next phase. What's next? What am I going to do? Where is this going? I can't keep staying the same forever. And it was a new thing to realize I didn't actually need ayahuasca to point me in the next direction or a psychedelic. I was pretty sure what I wanted and what I was scared of was a, a sort of a settling down, a less rootless existence. And for me, a, a dog was the perfect way to bridge that gap. It's not as intense as having a child. Also, currently, no one has volunteered to have a child with me. But this was a way for me to uh, change and grow. And now I have a puppy. And I talk a little bit about it with my guest this week, Claudia. So there's no need to tell you all the details of my new puppy life. This episode's guest is Claudia. Claudia is from Austria. She's a social scientist who got a grant from the European Union to study 
medicalization of psychedelics in the U.S. with the intent of bringing that knowledge back to Europe. Um, Claudia and I also met doing ayahuasca in South America, so there's this interesting juxtaposition of the context in which she works and which we met and we explore all of that. And I knew we had some common ground because we'd been in this setting together and in that very vulnerable personal environment. But I was also a little intimidated just seeing the words PhD and researcher and all this stuff. I don't really know that much about the uh, medical, the research side, even the decriminalized movement. I learned a lot about from Claudia, which you'll hear about. Um, and what's funny is I was kind of coming in thinking I needed to have this uh, intellectual conversation. And at a certain point, we, we start talking about the research, and I learned a lot, and then I tried to circle back to it later. And Claudia's like, ah, let's just skip it. Let's just talk about ourselves as people, which was very refreshing. And I think much like psychedelics, we were able to put aside our roles as interviewer and interviewee, researcher and subject. In retrospect, listening back to this conversation, that kind of seems to be a theme. It's an interesting thing of um, feeling removed from your surroundings. And as scientists, I think that is an attitude that's embedded in science as we are observers of these natural phenomena and yet we are also part of it. You can't study nature without realizing that you are a part of nature and that your observation itself is affecting it. So Claudia talked about some uh, social issues she had and feeling separate and things like that. And it's kind of interesting that she became a social scientist, sort of watching social movements from a distance and as she shares her journey of how that shifted and changed over time and now she feels differently. Anyway, it was a really good conversation. This is, if they could all be this good, I'd keep doing this forever. So I hope you enjoy it. One more uh, thing. We talk about trauma a little bit in this episode. Claudia and I both sharing some of our traumatic experiences, um, which shows that we felt very comfortable and safe around each other. You should never talk about your trauma in an environment you don't feel safe. But I think we both felt it was comfortable and we were able to do so. I wanted to talk about trauma for a second just because it was such an intimidating topic for me initially. Like the word trauma carries this deep connotation of like, getting your arm blown off or a terrible trauma. It's really got a heavy vibe to it. And I think learning about trauma and how psychedelics help with that has been a big shift. So I encourage you to listen to episode four, for one, um, with Carlos Tanner. But also a way that I've been thinking about it recently, which it helps make it seem more digestible is that everyone has trauma. It's a natural process of growing up. So if you ever ate a food when you were a kid and threw up, that 
is trauma. And it's a lesser trauma, but it illustrates it very well of you had this bad experience with this thing, and then forevermore you associate it with something bad, and it's actually stored in your body. It's not an intellectual process. It's When I was a kid, I ate pickles, and I threw up in this deli, and then if I even caught a whiff of a pickle, if I saw a pickle, I gagged. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a body thing. Um, and you can kind of extend that to other more serious things. It could be physical, sexual, emotional. But the key is that you have this belief that you learn from this experience. Pickles are bad. Pickles make me sick. And that's not necessarily true. You could eat a pickle... Maybe that was a bad pickle. Maybe it was soaked in piss instead of vinegar. I don't know. You see what I'm saying is that it's the belief that you form and that causes this physical reaction. And so the work of psychedelics is reprogramming those beliefs and getting you into an environment where you can feel safe, kind of reprogramming the body, reaccessing those initial states, which form this very heavy imprint, but may have not been that big of a deal. Or maybe they were a pretty big deal. But that's just a way that has helped me think about trauma. Um, because initially, it took a while before I was even receptive to the idea. I think I was very afraid of, I don't have trauma. I'm fine. I'm normal. And uh, everyone's got trauma. It just carries a very uh, a stigma or a connotation where we would like to not think we have it, but we do. And that is a lot of the work of psychedelic healing. The trauma will express itself in various symptoms. You could be triggered by similar situations, depression, anxiety, feeling weird, shutting down, wanting to isolate uh, withdrawing, all those things become symptoms of trauma. And then as you sit in those symptoms, you might learn that it leads back to an incident or many incidents. And you could have blocked those out. And so part of the work of doing psychedelics is those things resurface. And it is scary. But sometimes it's just that you ate a pickle and threw up. And sometimes it's something more serious. But I just wanted to share that, help demystify trauma a little bit. So I'm going to shut up. Enjoy the episode. I'll see you next time. I wrote this project proposal and got the funding and that allowed me to go to the U.S. for two years and then one year back in, in Europe. And who was the funding through? Was it through the EU or a specific yeah. university through the EU? Yeah, the funding is from the European Commission. And the project was to look... I'll let you answer. The project was... The research yeah. proposal was... 
It, it was on the medicalization of psychedelics in the United States, because at that point I, I saw that the U.S. was the most, let's say, advanced or that there was most of the research going on at that point. And uh, I thought it would be really interesting to look at these developments and then also draw conclusions for what that means uh, for Europe. You know, in these proposals, it's always good and important to like, you have to argue what knowledge will you bring to Europe? It's not just about... Um, some it's basic research, but it's also about going abroad, bringing knowledge uh, to Europe that can be used and yeah, has some broader societal implications as well. Yeah. And yeah, so I, since my background is in the study of science and technology from a social scientific perspective, my focus was first on, on the science and the medicalization uh, developments there and that then changed um, once I did the project so uh, I realized obviously that there was more going on um, to the science than just science and also when the decriminalization movement then really started in the US I yeah I I, I was there um, at one of the meetings in in Oakland um, at the city council where the decriminalized nature uh, initiative um, had their hearings, you know, in front of the city council who were deciding whether uh, natural occurring psychedelics were supposed to be deprioritized um, in terms of the law enforcement in the city. And um, I, I, got, I came there by chance actually um, and uh, but being there uh, was a really important uh, experience and moment for me because I realized, wow, here is something important going on. All these testimonies of the people in front of the city council. And uh, I was so moved by the whole process. It, it touched me extremely. It was like almost a psychedelic experience just being there because I saw that there was a need uh, of, of course, in the population to get access and to not be persecuted um, for the use of plant medicines. And that this also was heard by the members of the city council and, and then led to the decriminalization in the city. And that was the start of the, the bigger decriminalization movement in the US. And then for me, it became clear I I need to broaden my research to these more recent developments, which are as important, I think, um, as the medicalization movement. And it's not just the science that's driving this anymore. And yeah, I also saw, yeah, there's already, there were already some studies being done on the science and I, I didn't find that it was so interesting anymore at that point. I mean, there was, of course, interesting stuff going on, but this more broader social dynamic became more interesting to me then and yeah so I, I broadened my perspective during the project yeah how much of that was influenced by um your own experiences because I mean I'm assuming at some point in there you went to Ecuador and experienced ayahuasca in that context there may have been other experiences as well was that a driving force at all for you 
Yeah, um, it was for sure. It was a, a part of that process of me like opening up and seeing other perspectives. Uh -huh. Um, I, I came already when I came to the US uh, for my research, I, I had this um, idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to go to South America and do some more plant medicine work there. I, I never had taken ayahuasca before going to the US. And um, so I thought once I'm on the continent, uh, I might fly down there and uh, yeah, have some personal experiences um, because I yeah, I don't know for some reason I didn't hear the call <laughs> from ayahuasca before and but I yeah then I I felt like it's the right uh, moment and um, yeah I I did uh, an ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica first before coming to Ecuador that was uh, like a half a year before going to Ecuador. And yeah, this was, um, was a really powerful uh, experience and retreat. And especially the, the group context for me was, was the most important thing I would say in, in the retreat in Costa Rica and also then in Ecuador as well because I, I wasn't at all uh, familiar with these more communal settings I had only experiences um, on my own or with just a few friends uh, before that and yeah I think these um, communal settings they really allowed me to to heal some some deeper uh, social issues that I carried with me and yeah they also showed me that um, it's important to have these communal settings and to really create community around the plant medicines and the psychedelic substances and I think that was also the connection I made to the decriminalization initiatives going on because there it's also this focus on community building the local community where it's about um, having ceremonies in the local context and having guides from the local community and it really being embedded in the local context there which is a great model I think because um, it's not possible especially if we look now at the situation with Corona, the, the whole pandemic has shown us that we cannot uh, fly so easily to, yeah. to these foreign exotic places anymore. We Westerners who were so privileged to have the money, the resources, the capacities to go there. I recognize this is a very privileged position I had, right? To be even able to do that for my own healing and and that was true for all the other people there and this has now of course been yeah it's it's not so easy anymore or not possible at all so Local i think that community point, is by necessity now it, i mean it should yeah. be it should have been kind of priority before but our kind of global lifestyle that we all took for granted before is now one not possible, but also 
before we kind of ignored maybe some of the, the climate effects and things like that behind it. It's like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's biting us now, right? Uh, yeah. we, we can't uh, escape these effects anymore. And um, yeah, so I think that shows it's important to think locally, also in, in terms of psychedelic assisted healing, Yeah, the medicine has to be where we are and we cannot fly to the medicine all over the world. It's not going to be sustainable as a yeah. model. I, I agree. And I, because I had been going basically once a year for almost three years. And then this year I had thought again, like, well, it's about that time restriction. It, it would be possible for me to go again. And for the first time I thought, I don't, I don't know if this is, It was both personally, I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. And also I questioned the, the impulse to do, like, am I just thrill seeking now? Like I, I've gotten what I needed from this. Um, so it was kind of an evolution for me to step out of that. But you said a lot of stuff that I think is interesting and uh, good to unpack about um, the communal setting. I imagine that when you started and you're looking at the medicalization, the, the idea of taking it with a doctor or in that setting versus in this communal vibe around a fire, however it is, it's, that is the opposite of the white lab coat kind of, was that eye-opening for you? Was it did it seem a better way for you or that something was missing in the medical setting? I'm curious. because I don't know. I haven't considered much about medicalization. I'm have only been a, I want to say recreational user, but it's been a very solo thing and I'm not a researcher. So I'm wondering how that felt for you. Yeah. Really good uh, question to ask. I think for me personally, uh, The community aspect was a big thing, but also having the, the shaman. I mean, I'm, I think there's value in having like somebody there as a guide or someone who structures the context and creates the container. I think that's really important. And I'm not in principle um, against the, the white lab coat um, figure. <laughs> Because in, in reality, these are the people who are sitting there in the studies with the patients and the volunteers. Um, they, they don't wear the, the white lab coats, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was in the 50s, 60s a little bit. And that changed. And they wore also this more hippie shirts, like the one you have on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a little different than... Uh my conception of it is very outdated and probably most people's of a, a stern doctor. And don't they administer it? I mean, you probably know, all, I've seen things about like, they kind of have a little bit of ritual behind it. Sometimes music is playing. They'll give you the dose in like a chalice. I've seen that. It's like, they mm -hmm. kind of incorporate these um, elements into that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They really uh, took influences from the more, ceremonial context and try to integrate at least some into 
these settings. They also have like in some of the treatment rooms I've observed like books, you know, about indigenous cultures and uh, spiritual traditions. So that's there. It's in the room. But the whole thing is still, it's a different uh, model in the end, even though they have these little elements coming in. And there's even critique now forming in the psychedelic research community by, by some prominent researchers who argue that even these little influences are too much of an influence. And yeah, that even also in the interpretation of the experiences, it's important that the guides and the therapists don't impose um, some non some spiritual worldviews or some indigenous worldviews so i think it's going to be interesting whether there will be like different camps in the psychedelic science uh, community on what is allowed you know in terms of these influences how how far might there be also some turnaround in terms of it being more again like the white lab coats you know so there's i think some shifts also going on there and there's more positions and different people in the area now in terms of structuring the future of the research and how then these uh, therapies will be made available to people so yeah I I think it's an interesting turning point, perhaps at the moment, where it could be could go into different directions, and or maybe there will be multiple directions. Yeah. There will be maybe some therapies that are more aligned with also uh, ceremonial settings and um, other cultures, and others who won't. It almost seems to me like if you look at the history of psychology or something like these different schools of thought emerging and there's going to be a guy who says, oh, everything is behaviorist. And that's the only way to look at it. And then someone says, oh no, we have to look at it as positive psycho. And there's all these different camps. We're all kind of talking about the same thing, but everyone thinks they have the, the key when in reality yeah. it's probably none of those. These are all just models that we're creating that we think we hope will be the most effective. And probably some are more effective than others. But in the end, we're we'll probably just it all, all about depend, it. depends. Also, effective, you know, for for whom and for what, and it's it's always the package. Yeah, it's it's never just the substance. That's what we know, right, uh, about psychedelics. That it's not just the substance alone, but it's everything. And it all this also includes for me the the different the, uh, conditions or whatever you want to treat uh, in. Um, under quotation marks uh, here. So who who will be the recipient of the treatment? And it, it's always, it, it's one thing, right? It's not just a linear, I'm, I'm giving you the drug and then this happens. It's it's always, yeah, the, the whole thing here. Yep. And so you were talking about how you became more interested in decriminalization. I read that article that you wrote and you, I wrote down some points. I think one is that you were fighting against a predominant, 
position right now that I'm guessing in the medical research field that decriminalization at this point is dangerous or is it decriminalization or legalization that they're that many researchers are pushing against because they're afraid of a backlash like the 60s at that point it was decriminalization okay because decriminalization and legalization are different things right right yeah and even decriminalization is being pushed against yes because it's less regulated because there will be no body overseeing legalization for some would be even less problematic because it's usually coupled with uh, some regulations and some some bodies who, who kind of decide who gets what when. But the decriminalization is just very vague in, in the sense that there's no real overseeing authority. It's just, um, yeah, it's just allowing people to not do what they did anyway uh, with, with the fear they, they had, probably. Yeah. So, so what does, would Amsterdam and the truffles that be considered, considered legalization? Yeah, because so there's they have, shops. Okay, got it. There's, there's a whole structure around the substance and it's it's sold in the shops and I see so people are afraid of kind of chaos taking hold that no one's in control of the situation anymore if we decriminalize something that we all think is good all our research is indicating is good but um they're and it's also about setting yeah also about profit uh, that that comes in there, right? Uh, the state still can get some profit out of the this, this, the sales in the Netherlands, um, and decriminalization. There is no no profit to be made from like the the state, for instance. I was wondering about that because I didn't see much in that article, but I'm, I knew that you were considering it of like. I get, that's the thing I think about most is the commercialization of psychedelics. It seems that's the way everything is headed. All this venture capital money is flooding in. I get Facebook ads for mushroom stocks. People are trying to copyright and patent methods of uh, synthesizing psilocybin and things like that. And it's like, it should be this, my opinion is it should be this very democratized thing where it's cheap, it's affordable, anyone can grow it. It shouldn't be a big thing, but everyone wants a slice of the pie now. And that's where we're headed. That's, that scares me. How do you Mm -hmm. feel about that? Yeah. um, I feel similarly in many ways. And I also find it extremely fascinating that it's from a researcher standpoint, that this is happening now, like following in the cannabis trajectory um, and all these actors coming in who want to profit and um, so actually I hope to continue my my research on psychedelics with a focus on the entanglement of capitalism and psychedelics in these companies and the startups that are emerging and how that's gonna be positioned and how decriminalization efforts are 
kind of are positioned uh, in in opposition to that uh, and the different visions that will emerge there. In a way, I understand the fears about decriminalization, but you had this good point of that um, we're sort of reacting in this fear-based, your point was that the collective trauma of criminalization that researchers felt before because all the research was shut down and everything just, it was kind of an ugly situation for people who had put a lot of their life into that work, I'm assuming. And now everyone is so afraid that's going to happen again, that we're dancing in circles around maybe some of the better paths forward. And that, that we shouldn't let that fear it's kind of like if you have a bad experience with men and then you think all men are bad, you know, it's, it's that same yeah. thing mirrored on a larger scale of we, we better not do anything to piss anyone off or repeat this, but there's no uh, necessarily reason that it has to be like it was in the sixties. It's like, we we're in a different place and we've learned things. Yes. I think as a culture, we have moved on, right. Uh, I, I see this really as a cultural evolution dynamic that uh, the 60s had to happen, it seems, in the way they did, because it was a bit of an overreaching in, in a different direction that was uh, going too far for the powers in place. And um, I'm sure it was necessary culturally, culturally to do it uh, in this way and that it happened like that. But I also think that through the past decades, uh, we are at a different place now. And the way this is happening is already showing that we are in a different place and that, uh, yeah, societal reactions uh, in terms of policymakers and regulators are probably not gonna be the same as they were in the 60s. And what I'm also thinking what worse uh, could happen. It, the substances are already uh, scheduled illegal. I mean, yeah, what is the worst <laughs> thing that could happen is it stays the way it is, right? Yeah, they're not going to make it super criminalized, like double down and give you a death sentence if you're caught with it. There, there's nothing to yeah. that's a good point. Your of course, I, I mean, I understand, of course, also the, the researchers who fear, of course, about uh, their research and their legacy and, and all of that. One has to consider that. Obviously. And I don't I don't even think I wouldn't be. I'm sure that's a big factor for a lot of people, but I'm sure there's also a lot of people who are concerned about. I don't know, the social fabric or that people basically people can't handle their drugs. That was another point that you had. Um, as seeing that camp, which it's, it's easiest to say the Michael Pollan crowd, but I think that's a little reductive, but he's been a big... And actually, you know, uh, he changed his op opinion. Oh, did he? Michael Pollan. Yeah, so he has a new book. I know that came out like a month ago, right? I saw that. Right, just recently, yeah, on different plants and uh, their psychoactive... Uh, effects yeah and actually in, in that book he's now really following my argument <laughs> and oh, you also the argu <laughs> yeah. i know that he read my article so how do you how do you know that 
I know someone who sent it to him. Wow. Well, I, it's not just you a lot. He got a lot of blowback for that, didn't he? Yeah, I know. It's, it's not my, but my that's win part of it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a collective. Kinda, yeah. He kicked the hornet's nest with that one. Yes. Because yeah. he's kind of a newcomer in that scene. And a lot of people are like, hey, man, <laughs> we've yeah. been doing this a long time. And it's good that you had a couple experiences, but you're not the, uh... yeah, I know that for a while I saw a lot of negative press in the psychedelic community directed at him. Yeah. For, but I also, for different reasons. For yeah. different reasons. But I also appreciate that at least um, it, it is a bridge, like for people in my family who would not give psychedelics any credibility at all. Oh, Michael Pollan. I liked his food book there. They would, they would read his book. They did read his book. And then suddenly that I'm speaking a little bit of a common language with them. So it, it seems to be a necessary step again, as we are moving towards something, we're not all going to get it right on the first shot. Yeah. And of course, and I mean, this first book, uh, the mainstream book on psychedelics has to come from a, from a white uh, established man <laughs> from the U S who yeah. of course is gonna write from that standpoint. I mean, but there's not nothing else to expect there, right? And also in terms of the dynamics that then unfolded the whole critique that he's, of course, very limited also in his main focus on science uh, at first. Uh, so that's also for me clear that it had to happen this way. And he's at least, uh, I'd say he's clever or open enough that he's incorporating all of these critiques. And I mean... Uh, yeah, shifting his opinion. And so hopefully also the people who read his uh, current uh, book will kind of shift their perspective uh, again with him and open up also towards uh, decriminalization and see that the, yeah, that the war on drugs re really is the big issue here. And uh, yeah, that it's not just about the science. Yeah. And I mean, that's, there's so many directions to take that in of the war on drugs adversely affecting people, not just, usually when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about ways that can positively contribute to our lives, but there's a equal and opposite force of um, the way it's, the way criminalization has hurt people. So it's not just that we're trying to make it possible for you to go eat mushrooms with your friends. We're also trying to prevent the punitive and fear-based stuff from criminalization. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because that then creates even more trauma and, and more, uh, more ruptures in the social fabric and in families and in the lives of these people who are in the, often in the first place, uh, taking these drugs or selling these drugs because of trauma. And um, yeah, I just recently saw a, a clip from a documentary uh, about a, a prison and they, they did some a, a circle with the prison members, like most of them were, were black. And it was really powerful because the, there was a therapist and she like asked the people in in this circle to step 
step in if they had experienced certain adversities in their life and it, all of these traumatic things and almost everybody of them stepped in the circle so that was such a visual way of showing that uh, yeah what brings these people are yeah to to kind of do what they do and then what gets them into prison are obviously that what they have experienced in their families in their upbringing also because of social political circumstances racism and, and so on so the the whole punitive uh, approach of the war on drug really just perpetuates the, the trauma these people have already experienced in their lives yeah i mean the legal system in general i remember this is a long time. This is my very limited experience with, I got a ticket when I was in California for riding my bicycle with headphones. And then I had to go to court and it was this whole big thing. And I was so angry about it. And then it ended up being like $300 and I was broke at the time. And I was just so pissed off. And then I'm sitting in this giant court and other people walk in who are clearly from a different background than me you know a single black mother or something with a kid that she had to take to court and she's like I got a parking ticket and I couldn't pay it and then now I am losing my driver's license and uh, I'm being charged a thousand dollars and it just seems like the I know that's a little bit of a tangent but it's like who are our laws serving <laughs> I don't know it's like that was a very eye-opening experience for me where I was so angry about my $300 bicycle ticket and at least I could pay it, even though it was tough mm -hmm. for me at the time. There was people whose whole lives were being shattered by an unpaid parking ticket because the repercussions yeah. keep going and going and going. And it's kind of the same way to tie it in uh, mm -hmm. with penalizing people for drugs. Yeah, correct, yeah. And all these laws, uh, they don't consider the, the specific circumstances of, of the people involved, right? Um, or maybe they then can, if, if the argument is substantial that um, somebody can bring in, in, in court, maybe they lower the, 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 fi, um, the fees or uh, I don't know. But um, in general, the law is, is, is so unflexible, right? In, yeah. in, in what it's stating i'm thinking of a, my next question my next topic because yeah, we got things. into yeah we got into this uh, very dark corner now <laughs> yeah, i'm trying to back out <laughs> well because there's two things that i had stashed away i guess one of them was returning to the social setting of psychedelics what we experienced in the ayahuasca setting um and I, I'm curious because you had mentioned that it kind of healed some things or changed some things for you socially. I'm wondering what that is. For me, I'm, I'm thinking about how being in that setting with a bunch of people, their journey starts to become part of yours as well. And also with having other people around, you get to see your mind at work forming judgments and forming attractions and unattractions and all of these things. And it becomes a thing that you can use to inquire with yourself. So I used to kind of think like, 
going off in the woods and taking a high dose was the ultimate form of self-inquiry. I don't think that's true. I think being around people from different backgrounds and having to reckon with the way that you automatically feel about them is just as important, if not more important. Yes, I, I love how you put it. Yeah, I, I feel very similarly in that sense. For me, the, the whole experience at the retreat was exactly what you just described, triggering a lot of these prejudices I, I had. Um, and I could really observe some of my aversions uh, against some of the people yeah. at the retreat where I thought, for instance, why are they here? They don't deserve to be here. <laughs> They, they don't uh, fit my profile <laughs> for someone who's supposed to be here. And especially there were at the one retreat um, some, some guys who represented for me a specific type of masculinity. Were they the, Brit really... the British guys? Yeah. <laughs> I still remember that. So I, they represented the same thing to me. And I'm not sure that... Keep going. Keep talking. It's not like we're going to name them or implicate them. Yeah. So, yeah, this was, yeah, from the beginning, I was like, oh, well, yeah, this, just the energy coming from them, you know, was really disturbing for me. And I also have, um, because of my own trauma, obviously, as well, because I, I was like sexually abused as a child and also some, I also came to the retreat to heal from some trauma I experienced because of toxic masculinity in a work setting. So yeah, they kind of yeah embodied like this this perpetrator energy. I think the male perpetrator energy for me. And um, yeah, but it was also interesting how that then changed for me during the retreat and how I became more aware and conscious um, of myself and what was going on. And I, I remember that in the first uh, circle where we shared uh, our stories, even before we did the ayahuasca, they, they spoke about their own trauma and, and how they coped with it by just repressing their feelings and just going into this specific type of masculinity, this strong, strong man uh, masculinity that's really kind of, yeah, not seeing the feminine inside of it itself. And yeah, I think I, I really learned to open myself up during the retreats to them and, and see them for what they really were instead of my own model I had of them and to see them as whole human beings with their stories and who, of course, took up uh, this uh, very easily available masculinity from society in order to protect themselves in, in the context they grew up because that was what they had available and they constructed of their, their life their identity on on that and but yeah I think it was really brave of them to go to the retreat and to confront also that and to really try and be emotional 
And um, yeah, one of them, I think, also said before he came to the retreat that he never cried in his whole life. And I, I remember that one of the volunteers then said, uh, yeah, but uh, this is what it's about here and you have to be vulnerable. And yeah, that really turned out to be true. Yeah, that seeing those transformations was very powerful for me as well. Because it's not just, so you were going through this process of examining your own um, defense mechanisms and the way you felt, but they're undergoing that process too. And so they're shedding these layers and everyone's kind of shedding these layers together. And somehow at some point, fairly quickly, you start to meet as these uh, kind of like newborn baby people who are unguarded and there's dangers in that too, but to be able to strip stuff away in that setting is very healing. Um, I, would you be able to necessarily get that same result from just being by yourself or being um, not having that connection with another person that you're, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for, I think for me, it, it was crucial to have it with another person and in this group setting. I, I think I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to go into, uh, to meet people like that because my, my circles are so, we live in these bubbles, right? And I don't meet because of course, the way my life went, I don't meet people like that usually. But during the retreat, that was a really special container that allowed me to encounter something I had avoided my whole life because yeah. that was what I was trying to get away from because that was what hurt me all the time. And so like being in that safe container and being confronted with that energy through these people, but knowing that I was safe, that was for me so important. Also like even signing these, uh, the sheet, I think it was where you say we no sexual yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. encounters and stuff like that. This was for me so such a relief because I knew uh, these these are the rules we have to adhere to these rules. And then I can I, I know not if, if something happens, I know exactly where to go and point to, right? Here are the rules you signed, I signed, you didn't <laughs> respect that. <laughs> you so broke the rules. Yeah. <laughs> It is a kind of, I, I felt that same safety of even just like, I didn't have a big issue with drugs, but drugs have been a sensitive thing where I used to be a huge pothead. And then I uh, decided that was really just me numbing myself. And it was always very hard to go back into social situations where people were smoking pot for me because either I would feel tempted or I would feel like I was socially alienating myself by abstaining, um, all these things and just have it in the rules, no pot. <laughs> that was a, a big relief for me of like, if I've never been a very big rule person either, but that rule was so relieving for me of just like, I have a place where I don't have to worry about that. And if someone is smoking pot, I can kind of give them a dirty, I'm not going to like rat them out, but I can give them a little bit of a dirty look. You're breaking the rules. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. 
that it was for you with pot and for me it was about the the sex thing yeah well i had it with sex too of it took a pressure off of me and not that i think i'm necessarily the perpetrator type but it took a big pressure off of me of like even it's i was interested in someone romantically i knew like i can just let that go like i can observe it in me that it's happening that i tend to form these entanglements very quickly but also i'm not here for that and that was very relieving too of this pressure of like feeling like that i should be trying to romantically engage with someone i could just leave that all to varying degrees but it, it, i think in terms of action that was very relieving my inner world was still all churned up and confronting those aspects of myself but i found that very relieving too and i think that's you keep using and the do word you think uh, actually sorry uh, do you think actually that um the rule of like um that these aspects were not allowed was it enabling you Uh, a, a different kind of processing of, of those uh, urges or emotions that were associated with it? Yes. Um, because there was no way to act out on, even like flirting felt pointless because for me, flirting was a means to obtain sex. Um when I didn't have that on the table and I could keep going layers deeper, I could examine that really, I just wanted connection is what I wanted. And I was, had that male thing of the only way to obtain connection is through sex. Mm. Um, so when that was off the table, I could actually become more intimate with people than I ever had before, because before there was always this, Are we, are we flirting? Are we not? How do you feel about me? How do I feel about you? I don't know. We both are bouncing off each other and creating this weird dynamic. And uh, once that was, it's not that it's off the table. I guess it, it is off the table in terms of, you know, you shouldn't be doing it, but then you still have the inner propulsion to do it. And then you can examine it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing that, that it led you to, to these deeper places where you realized what you're actually craving yeah. on a deeper level. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the great uh, opportunities in, in such settings and why I think rules are really good. <laughs> it's good to have them. It is good. And it, it, I think that was something that was missing in my earlier. So I had a bit of a different background than you of I had, done a lot of psychedelics in my youth starting as a teenager and that was very like anything goes you know all the wrong settings music festivals there was there was never any rules at all and I was kind of struggling to figure out what should the rules be and gradually I would start to come up with things for myself but being in that setting was like oh it was so relieving <laughs> And I was like, I've been doing it wrong for 10 years. <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so something else that you brought up that we've kind of danced around a little bit is um, the spiritual aspect. And that has been a big shift for me too. And I'm wondering how that ties in with you of 
being in the world of science and research, there is there an aversion to that discussion at all? Does it creep in around the edges? Um, yeah, so I would say that, I mean, it's it's in the science, also in the sense that the people also in the studies, especially with psilocybin, have these mystical experiences. So that's that's about spirituality, right? So it's it's in there, but it's still it's uh, couched in the whole scientific language and everything. But of course, a lot of the researchers, they are interested in the whole topic of psychedelics because of the spiritual dimensions uh, it's, it's bringing with it. And uh, I think we also see now that there's more interest also from the side of religion and uh, yeah, bringing psychedelics and religion closer together and, and seeing how that could develop in society. So yeah, I think there's a lot to be still to be seen in, in, in that regard. It's interesting because isn't the mystical experience in the psychedelic research, isn't that a prime indicator of successful outcomes? Like if they had a mystical experience, they're 90% more likely to uh, not have depressive episodes six months later or something like that. Like in almost every mm -hmm. category, the mystical experience seems to be the prime correlation between a successful outcome. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's true. But um, yeah, of course, uh, you also have to be a little bit cautious then in the way the, the studies are also constructed, that they use specific mystical experience questionnaires that measure specific type of uh, mystical experience. And of course, the, the views of the scientists are also part of the whole study, right? So they might also construct it in a way that it's geared towards showing that the mystical experience is important. I, I wouldn't say that it's, it's not true. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm yeah. just saying it's constructed in a certain way that that's co conducive to producing this outcome. And I would also question that even though a mystical experience can like really lift people out of their depression for a while this does by no means mean that they will be without any depressive symptoms in the future they just measure the the outcomes like six months later or one year later and usually as we see now with most of the people in the studies the depression comes back and I, I can also speak from my own experience because I've lived my, my whole life, I think, basically with depression. And um, I think, yeah, my, my own experiences with psychedelics, they, they helped me, of course. Like the, the first time I, I, I took psilocybin mushrooms, I, I felt this immediate lifting of like a veil was lifted from me and suddenly everything was more bright such such a lightness I had never experienced in, in myself. And I think this experience really made me believe, wow, psychedelics could be a, a, a cure for, for yeah. my depressive mood. 
but um yeah i i think it's not that easy and the yeah no that's been probably the theme of every episode of my podcast i i kind of want to correct that misconception because i thought that for a long time i thought if i just keep doing psychedelics or keep doing more psychedelics or keep i need to be trying different ones maybe i'm not doing the right ones in the right amounts at the right places there's a kind of infinite reorganizing of that until eventually i had done enough where i was like oh there's other pieces to this puzzle this alone isn't going to be enough so for me therapy was very useful not that i wasn't doing it before but i think i I just had a different perspective on it, that all of these things are important depending what you're trying to change and work on. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think it's important to have a therapeutic component really attached to these experiences. And yeah, if you suffer from depression, one psychedelic experience won't get you out. Also not 10, maybe not 20. <laughs> it all depends on your life circumstances and, and so much. And in general, I think uh, the whole situation on this planet at the moment, it's if you are a sensitive human being and realize what's going on on a bigger level as well, how, how can you not be depressed, right? I, th I think also since the pandemic, I mean, that's uh, a lot of people uh, struggling now with depression and similar symptoms of, of this world. Yeah. And there's two things that that brought to mind. One of so the larger challenges we face as a planet, I think a, it's a tough thing because sometimes depression for me can come from blocking out reality of like I am making my world so small through playing video games or whatever, just avoiding stuff. I'm avoiding the, the hard truths of the world. And that is causing depression. It, you can have the opposite too, where everything seems so overwhelming. Everything seems hopeless. You know, the planet's dying and blah, blah, blah. It's a balance between everyone's got that balance of um, being active. Wouldn't you, yeah. But wouldn't you say that you're uh strategy of isolation is also uh, a symptom of the broader uh, situation where you don't feel able to cope with the, the whole, whole world anymore. And so you, you make it smaller and think maybe then I can manage it, but you just can't block it out and it's just not happening like that. Yes. <laughs> That is true, but I think you can also learn to be more resistant, not resist. I don't know what the right word is. I guess, um, I don't, tough isn't the right word. Resilient isn't really the right word, but you learn strategies for coping with uncertainty and discomfort and things like that, rather than blocking them out. And so I think, for a healthy person who has those abilities, their tolerance for harder things becomes much higher. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone is, that's just part of life in general is having to learn to tolerate discomfort and uncomfortable things. 
Yeah, I think uh, that's important. Yeah, to kind of grow in your capacity to to deal with the the whole situation on the planet and to be present for it and and not go into some reactionary or dissociative uh, strategy. Uh, I think, yeah, that's important. And uh, you need to do some inner work maybe first uh, with your own story and, and trauma stuff in order to be fully present to the, to the broader. At, at least uh, that was also something I experienced in my journey because I... I, I think I like tuned out of the global dimensions uh, for a while where I also stopped uh, consuming news and um, yeah, maybe you're familiar with these types of uh, uh, behavior. Um, and I feel that just now I'm, I'm slowly coming back where I'm reading again newspapers and I'm, I feel I can engage again with the whole struggle that's going on. And, but this was a really interesting, really long process for me. In fact, that I, I, I had to go, I had to, yeah, really go to my own inner issues first in order to again, be open for the whole. Yeah. I, I mean, I can relate to that a lot. I think I still struggle with that of, that's a recurrent pattern for me to kind of um, isolate or make, just focus on my small little world. I don't think that's necessarily unhealthy, but it can become unhealthy. And for me, it has come over that line frequently. I always have to bring myself and I get better with it as I get older, but it's been a recurrent pattern. Has that been that way with you as well? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I, I think for me, it was less, less of this uh, opening up, closing down. It was really a, a hard shutdown yeah. in the way that I really isolated myself a lot. And uh, yeah, also to a really unhealthy extent, uh, I now see. And so I... Yeah, I, I have this urge and need in, in me now to be more open and more social and engage more. And I think us talking here is, is part of that process. Yeah, I think that <laughs> uh, is the same for me of hosting this podcast. And I know that there's probably a lot of nerves for you, even because you asked me to be on here. I thought that was brave. Not everyone does I feel the same way when I ask someone, I'm like, oh my God, what if they say no, blah, blah, blah. And that for me is a big step of like uh, just putting something out into the world and not fearing the rejection or not obsessing over the accolades, the imaginary accolades that I think I'm going to get. I, for me, I'm very, I have coming from a achievement kind of background. So for me, this is, can be a funnel for achievement as well of like, ooh, my podcast is going to take off and I'm going to be a millionaire and get all the attention, which is obviously a delusion, but that's the way my brain works. And I, I sort of welcome that in. I think I am sort of welcoming it in so I can work with it as opposed to avoiding it, which is how I used to deal with it. I'd avoid any kind of 
stimulus that might trigger that thing. And then I would pursue it really hard again. And this kind of unhealthy duality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's similar to what we talked about with the, at the retreat, right. Where you also have to confront on a deeper level then. And you're, it seems also with doing the, the podcast, you're kind of, uh, drawing on that same lesson in the sense that uh, you can do it but not in the usual way and you can use it as a tool to go to the deeper layers of your experience without going into these delusional fantasies yeah of yourself you got it <laughs> so with the spirituality which i think we were originally talking about that fascinates me because it's hard to measure. It's hard to even have the language of science doesn't deal with it. Well, we have to adopt a new framework. And that for me has, I don't know if it wasn't really until I started doing ayahuasca where that kind of spiritual component came in. I don't think that it's impossible with mushrooms or anything else. It just maybe was whereas I was ready for it then. Have you had a spiritual shift, uh, a way of looking at the world differently as well? Yeah, for me, it's a bit different because I already was on a spiritual journey before I came across the psychedelics and the plant medicines. Uh, yeah, for me, spirituality has been there in my life already. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there for all of us in, in different ways. But yeah. for me, it was already when I was 14, I, I felt a deep urge To, to know more about the deeper reality <laughs> and also to stop my suffering. So that's why I fell into Buddhism really hard at first uh, and started to meditate and um, yeah, engage more at that age. But then I lost that and also was drawn more into the world and achievement and so on. But uh, for about 10 years now I'm again I would say fully back on the spiritual path and also then first with Zen Buddhism and then moved to the more Hinduism uh, especially the more brainy uh, approaches with Advaita Vedanta and so I've yeah I, yeah I've been really into that for a while and um, in, in that engagement I I had one of my yeah, my deepest spiritual mystical experiences, uh, which, and this experience really changed uh, my perspective. I, I have to say that was during a meditation I did. And yeah, it, it was more important and more fundamental for me than ev every psychedelic experience I had. Wow. So, yeah. So some kind of classical breakthrough experience where, just the way that you were viewing reality or consciousness became forever shifted. Yeah. Yeah. It was like an explosion of my whole body. And then that was gone. Uh, so <laughs> there was no body and, and world anymore. And I, my consciousness was still there. So I, I knew that I was not my body Yeah. In reality and that that of course shifted my uh, until then still materialistic uh, worldview and I also refound I, I found uh, or I 
I reframed my understanding of, of God and God came into the picture again. And also, of course, that death is not really real <laughs> and all of that. Yeah. So I sometimes I'm still learning the language to talk about this stuff, but I know a little bit about Hinduism. I know more about Buddhism and things. And when I think about spirituality now, the way I think of it is similar to that experience you had of you lost your body. You in some way are not associated with the mind either. And yet there's still an awareness. So what is that thing? And it, the only way I know how to even talk about that stuff is it really doesn't make sense till you've had that experience or a lot of people can recall that kind of something from childhood or some moment that stood out. People generally know what you're looking at the stars in nature. People know what that sense of awe is, but if you haven't experienced it in 10 years or something, it's like, I might as well be talking about uh, gases on a foreign moon somewhere. It just doesn't register. But now I think I can kind of connect with what you're saying through psychedelic stuff and that was a big shift for me as well of um, developing some kind of spiritual practice when I realized psychedelics weren't going to carry the whole burden for me. What is the Hindu practice that you were talking about that you in Veda something? Uh, Advaita Vedanta is the tradition. And uh, the practice uh, I did was a self-inquiry method that was... Um, kind of made popular or devised uh, or invented or whatever you want to call it uh, by Sri Ramana Marishi, uh, an Indian saint who had a very deep uh, mystical experience when he was 16 years old, where he felt the sudden urge or just an inkling that he would die on, the, on a, that day and so he thought yeah okay if I'm going to die I might as well just lay down here and experience my death and so he basically went into a really deep meditation about uh, himself and what he is and his body and yeah he also yeah had this very deep experience of being just awareness or whatever you want to call it the Atman in the Hindu tradition, the soul. And yeah, he became uh, a sadhu and uh, people were noticing him. And so he became a very well-known saint in India. And a lot of people came to him. He had an ashram later. Is and, a sadhu yeah. a, a teacher or a kind of wandering? I yeah. That... He was just wandering around without... Yeah. Uh, any concern for his body and just sitting around and being in bliss. So that's what drew people obviously to him. They what want, is what going that on? Yeah. That guy yeah. looks like he's got something going on. What's up with that? Yeah. So, and that also was, and he, yeah, uh, he's, yeah, he just fascinated me at that point. And I thought, why, why, why I can't, uh, I should try and replicate his methods and I just read a few pages in one of his books and I thought I I'm gonna do this now 
uh, like he did it. I'm just going to kill myself and <laughs> sat down. And uh, yeah, it was really amazing. Uh, yeah, how that all happened. But it does, was also deeply... Uh, I don't want to romanticize this experience because it was also really problematic in many ways because I wasn't ready for it. And it's, it was so fundamental that I, I, I think I'm still integrating it, of course. And that's now seven years ago. So, yeah. yeah. Well, the problem with a shattering experience like that is okay, what do I do now? There's a lot of pitfalls that I've learned about on those spiritual paths of like, um, you can become callous. You could say there's no point to anything. Why do I even do anything at all? If it's all an illusion. Um, yeah. There's all kinds the of nihilism. Like yeah. Yeah. The nihilism and you can become dead and in your heart, like you feel disconnected from everyone because they don't know the truth. I know the truth. You're all, you're blind. Yeah. And you see that a lot in new agey communities and ayahuasca communities, to be honest, that has been a big turnoff for me. And it's only gotten worse mm -hmm. with coronavirus and things like that, which is a whole nother can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's this danger there that you become really idiosyncratic and think your worldview just because you had a deep experience is, is the most correct or deepest one. And yeah, I, I totally see that problem there. And um, I, I wasn't uh, able to like uh, <laughs> avoid it myself for a while. So was there kind um, of a, a period of like a dark night of the soul afterwards or just like a yeah, search for I'm still <laughs> it's not over. I'm still in it. I'm still in it. <laughs> but there I guess there's a seeking impulse now of like, okay, if if that experience was valid and real, how do I live now? And that has been a ongoing question for seven years. Is that the way you view it or they're differently? Yeah. So how to live now with this new perspective on, on the world and how how is that reorienting? me and my decisions and what I'm doing on, on this planet. <laughs> yeah. Which can feel scary as well as a part of the ayahuasca experience of things that you assumed were a bedrock of your personality or your life can fall away or they can mm. suddenly feel just like that shouldn't be there. Why is that there? It could be a relationship. It could be, the way that you conduct yourself with friends, it could be anything. Um, but I don't think I was prepared for that. I would shift so much. I just wanted to feel better and not actually change anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that would be so nice. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work like that. And how do you think, what were the main changes for, for you in the process? Um, I think to not be seeking external rewards so much. I mean, I still do that, but I have a growing awareness of, and I was surprised at the things that I had convinced myself that I wasn't doing that. But for me, a big part of it was um, I had funneled so much energy into artistic endeavors. And I thought that is a valid 
um, I'm not like everyone else. I am a starving artist and I'm making my masterpiece that everyone's going to care about so much. And I just realized like, I'm the same as like a businessman who like is really attached to his business. I just convinced myself mm -hmm. that it was worth more because it's art, <laughs> but I, I had an unhealthy fixation and obsession with those things that were destructive to my relationships. And so those things, I still create things now, but I'm more aware of my relationship to them and not letting them get in the way of my relationships with people. Mm. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, completely. Yeah. For me, I think it, it was a bit similar because um, I also thought that, yeah, that I would do something important with my research, right? And art and research for me is a bit similar in, in that sense. It also is like calling on you as a whole human more than other jobs, right? Because it's kind of um, having this idea that you can self-express yourself better through these artistic or scientific endeavors and that you're in it as a whole person and you're not doing it for the money, right? You're doing it for, yeah. for something higher than these, yeah, financial concerns. And, and you can kind of get off on that too, of thinking that uh, we're so elevated and we're really changing the world and all that stuff. And that too is a form of self-indulgence and all those things. I mean, I think you cannot uh, avoid some self-indulgence in the no. end. But um, I think it's maybe important to see that it's not better than the people who just go after money. Yeah. To just not put yourself on a pedestal because you chose that path. Um, so, so now I'm I, like, I'm thinking, oh, maybe should I just go after money just like to, to counter <laughs> that? <laughs> well, I think for me, what I've realized is a lot of the things that I enjoy and for example, artistic things, there is something very pure there, but there's a layer of ego in the way of it. So it's not that I have to stop writing or making music. It's that I have to be more aware and accepting of when those ego things come into play and acknowledge they're there. And it's, it's not like I'm past that at all, but I'm more aware of it. And that makes doing those things actually more enjoyable. I thought that if I gave that part of myself up, that I would be a worse writer or a worse musician or a worse podcaster or whatever when in fact it's made it more fun because there's not as much pressure to impress everyone it's coming more out of a place of this is an expression of myself and an exploration of myself so I wonder if you can apply that same thing to your research of like instead of trying to fulfill some need for social approval or whatever grand achievement does that resonate yeah, for at me all? It's, yeah, a little, yeah. For me, it's interesting because I think I've, I've, I've left this idea of uh, social approval or acceptance behind a long while ago. And I feel that for me, it's actually the, 
the movement in into into the opposite direction towards also accepting social uh, approval and and all of that because i was like rejecting yeah that as as the as a whole in a way and that also kind of is hindering me of course to to tap into my full potential and to be as creative as i could be because i'm not doing it for approval or to get anything but in order just to do anything it's you cannot decouple it from the social approval it's it's part of it you also have to do it for other people and they approve of what you do or don't so uh yeah to deny your need for social approval is like denying part of your humanity yeah i think the problem exactly. that we've run into is that that has kind of been weaponized against us with social media and the way that stuff is. So, but the, the actual need for social approval and belonging, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, although sometimes we attempt to deny that from ourselves, but yeah, I think it's more, I guess, the changing landscape of thinking I want to impress a bunch of strangers or whatever it may be. I think it's maybe it's more about from which place you're doing it rather than that you're doing it. I think it's important to do it, but from which place does that impulse arise or where is it based? Is it based in a lack of regard for yourself that you think you need the approval to, to be acceptable for yourself? Or are you doing it because you already think, or no, I'm... I'm great as I am and I can show it to the world. And I think that that's maybe what makes the difference. Yeah, I think you're right. Of um, Then it's more of a sharing thing. You're sharing yourself yeah. with other people and they're sharing with you and you're in a community now, as opposed to, I guess, not to spin it out, but like a, uh, a more hierarchical capitalist achievement, higher dominator thing i think we all get academia is like that the spiritual circles that we talked about are like that so maybe those yeah. old patterns are very hard to break yeah 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 exactly that it's also like you said it's not about getting approval from those higher up right it's about that doesn't matter then anymore it's just you you're giving yourself and this sharing can happen between all different kinds of people. And it doesn't matter who sees you or applauds you or whatever. It's yeah. just, yeah, that you're doing it. What else am I missing? Is there any aspect of your research that you'd like to talk about or? Mm, I don't feel the need. <laughs> <laughs> to share to share yeah more it, it feels kind of uh i don't know after we talked about these more personal and more deeper things it, it feels even for me like more shallow to go back to my my research on a different level i don't know yeah well i appreciate that i think i think that's also true of what people resonates with people and what I think you can read all the research you want, but for me, like listening to someone's personal story is always so much more impactful um, 
so if we could share something about our journey, maybe something that we experienced together, Gaia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, were we in the same, were you in the ceremonies? Uh, I must have been one in one ceremony with you. Yeah, sure. But which one? <laughs> it's tough to remember because I yeah, had all these so groups many. and... yeah. Probably an ayahuasca one. Mm-hmm. I, I tended to gravitate more towards ayahuasca than San Pedro. For me, actually, the, the San Pedro ceremonies were more memorable. I agree. A lot of people feel that way. Um, and I think it's because of that group aspect that we talk about. It's, yeah. not, it's not just you in the darkness closing your eyes. It's showing up for other people, exposing yourself watching other people be exposed. I still haven't, I can't think of anything like that. I guess probably when you were talking about the people testifying before the Oakland Congress about their experiences, that gave me a similar feeling in my heart of people really speaking some, showing up in their full selves publicly which doesn't yeah. happen very often. There's not very many areas that that can happen at all. Even with a lot of people's families, you can't show up as your whole authentic self. I never showed up to my family the way I did in this podcast, for instance. <laughs> that wouldn't be acceptable. Well, there's, But yeah. that's also why I left that family. <laughs> yeah, I faced some of the same things, but... I guess family is where you find it as well. Finding? Family mm-hmm. is where you find it, that expression. Oh, it must be an English expression that you're not familiar ah, with. Ah, okay. No, I'm not familiar with it. Family is where you find it, that necessarily your birth family or mm-hmm. those don't have to be the most impactful people in your life. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. It's something you can create for yourself with other people once you're out of that original family structure that, of course, is forming you and how you respond. And then you need to do a lot of work uh, often to uh, kind of get yourself out of these dysfunctional patterns that were installed in you. And in the process, you find other people who are in the same process and uh, so you form a new family of people who are interested to get out of the structure from their original families one thing that i remember about gaia and meeting you and i found this it could be a personality quirk of myself but i think you were kind of shy and reserved but because you had this sciencey background which i kind of also have I found it easy to talk to you. And in general, I find that I like shy people more as opposed to say the alpha male bravado where they're all kind of beating their chest. I've often found that shy or quiet people have way more interesting things to say. They just don't say them. (laughs) They have to be, they have to be in the right context to speak. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, I think, um, yeah, that I can relate to that observation 
also of myself. Um, I usually, when I enter like new spaces and I, I, it takes a while for me to, to really open up to other people. But if I feel there's a connection there at the end, uh, then I, I can really go fast, really deep. And that's often not what people want. And I don't, I'm not interested in these uh, sh more shallow bro conversations. <laughs> um, so I, if, if I'm around, I, I stay more on the outskirt and, and look at it and think my own stuff. And yeah. Yeah, me too. I wonder if some of that, we talked about trauma a lot and you shared a little bit about some of the trauma that you had. I remember a lot of what I was working through there was also trauma-based and very early stuff that was, came up. Um, but what was weird for me was it, it loomed so large in my mind that, um, that there was like an, a repressed sexual incident or something. And what it turned out for me after maybe two years of inquiry was that there was, I remember I kind of all came back together, but I was very young and there was a babysitter and he, he, she had an older child and that child kind of was mean to me, but I was like two or three years old. And so when I was, I mean, this was a big thing. Like it sounds not that big of a deal now, but like I couldn't, I would, my body would shut down if I even thought about it. Um, and when I finally got to the bottom of it through therapy and doing mushrooms by myself, uh, it, it just all of a sudden seemed like inconsequential of like, once I had made the leap out of that story and the story was, I'm a bad kid. Mom and dad wouldn't have left me with this predator unless I'm a bad kid. That's the way a two-year-old would think about it. And I was totally able to recontextualize it of like meeting that inner child and saying like, no, you know how if you steal a cookie from the cookie jar, mom and dad don't always know. <laughs> they don't know everything. And that kind of, it sounds silly, but that flipped everything for me. And afterwards, the fact that I'm even talking about it now, uh, there was no way I could do that before. And that was all from chipping away at it and a psych and one psychedelic session. Wow. So that yeah, for me is kind of a, a testament to how powerful these things can be if used in the right way. I'm wondering if you have any similar experience yeah. or. Yeah, I think what you described is exactly the, the ideal process in, in terms of the reframing of that original situation and, and all the stories and emotions that were attached to it, like seeing it from this different angle and then being able to reprocess it in a, in a different way. Um, yeah, in, in my experience, um, I had uh, a similar uh, experience in the sense that um, I, I really had a sexual uh, abuse uh, trauma. I wasn't aware uh, about it um, for most of my life. And uh, that uh, didn't come up in a psychedelic session, but uh, through some other experiences. Um, but then I was able to also go into that uh, experience uh, with the medicines and also 
reprocess it and understand it better. And for me, it was a lot of uh, also going back to the body and uh, feeling all the, the feelings um, that were stored from, from these experiences. Um, and a lot of my psychedelic uh, healing sessions were really just very extreme uh, bodily experiences in the sense of shaking, screaming. Yeah. And, and the cognitive uh, reframing was, of course, also part of that. But first was, was really the, the bodily uh, dis discharging of, of all these energies that were stored. And yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's been a long process. <laughs> well, you also mentioned that you were kind of numb or completely shut down for a while, right? Bef before yeah. this. So that kind of makes sense that it's almost the body is coming back online and everything that had been shut off now has to be released in some way because it's still there. But if uh, some kind of feeling valve has been tampered off to protect you those original feelings and stuff are still stored in there somewhere yeah correct yeah it, it's definitely a, a new awakening of the body uh, itself and but i also had uh, also through that spiritual experience i i mentioned there was also an element of dissociation still uh, attached because I realized I was not the body and, and that kind of took a while for me to, to overcome because that was really great for my instinct uh, where I was anyway dissociating from the body <laughs> and again this is an, uh, the, yeah, an example where you can use this deeper spiritual understandings or experiences to, yeah, to kind of up, uphold your own defenses and, and not use it in a productive way. Is that what people refer to? I hear this word all the time, spiritual bypassing. Is that what they're yeah. referring to with that? Yeah. Of using these higher spiritual truths to just ignore some basic human shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thinking, long silence. It's been a while since I've talked about some of this stuff. I've just been so busy with puppy land and all that. You've got puppies, a one puppy. I've got one puppy, but she's a lot of work. <laughs> and I, I attribute my ability to even show up for the responsibility of that, of again, in some way, this is tied to the psychedelic process of being like, I can't remove myself from all connections to other people and things. I had lived this kind of single bachelor life for so long. And then particularly with coronavirus and all that stuff, like just the removal of everything. I had to really confront like, no, I'm a person. I have emotional needs. I need touch. And that opened the opportunity to get a dog. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a big adjustment That's... for me. I'm mm -hmm. used to my, my quiet alone time and doing whatever I want. <laughs> so, so what's it changing uh, for you now? Um, well, you have to learn patience. You also have to step into a caretaker role of, and I have to, the big thing is I have to put my needs be secondary to something else. So I, I might not feel like going for a walk, 
but the dog really needs to go for a walk and I need to reorganize my life so that I am able to meet her needs rather than her just be this kind of like appended, this like accessory that I trot out. Look at my cute puppy. It's like, it's a lot more than that. It's really a reorganization of my life. And I guess to an extent, my inner world of being selfish. I think that's actually so important to have such an experience in terms of enabling you to grow beyond your own self-focused perspective. So I think that's amazing that you're doing it. And I also felt this need in myself now for a long time to, yeah, to do something like that, because I think you cannot avoid this step. It's, it's a natural, it should be a, a, a next, it's an important step in a human life to, to take care of, of something, somebody, something living. Yeah. I think it's a part of the maturing process and yeah. I'm not going to say it's all sunshine, but <laughs> it does reorient stuff. And a lot of my existential, um, angst if there was still some left there's just not room for that anymore you have to focus more on the practical things in a way you have to kind of inhabit your body more and be present um or i mean you can still dissociate and take care of a puppy but or a child you know a lot of people do yeah, that and then you're true. not really meeting their needs and then that is kind of passing on the trauma yeah that was always what i didn't want to continue because That was what I experienced already in were my family. Were you afraid that you were incapable of showing up in that way? Yes, very much so. Because I felt I wasn't able to even show up for myself in the way I needed to. Yeah. So I, I felt I needed to show up for myself first before I could show up for another human being I was uh, supposed to be responsible for. But... I also think that maybe there's different uh, approaches. Maybe it would have been possible to also, yeah, take care of another human be being. Maybe that would have kind of uh, thrown me in something, but I could still have maybe learned in the process and also move beyond my inner obstacles in a way. So, yeah, that's something uh, I think I've changed in my few i always thought that that's not an option but i think uh, i also think that's a valid option and yeah i think uh, a big life-changing experience like having a child even if it's unwanted um it can be a catalyst for that change if you're willing to show up and not be totally overwhelmed by it um But yeah, everyone is on a different path and everyone's got different things that feel possible to them. I'd, if I had a puppy two years ago, I would have not been able to handle it for the exact reason that you're saying of, I couldn't even cope with my own emotions. How am I going to cope with this puppy who can't cope with her emotions and is crazy? And I have to be the calm one and say, it's okay. We're not dying. You mm. just, you're just hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the puppy is an external uh, sign of your own inner process now, right? That you're capable of uh, being there for another living being. Yeah, I and for yourself as well. That's kind of how growth works is you keep pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone and then the comfort zone gets bigger and then 
you get kind of bored in that zone and you want something else to continue your growth. Mm. Yeah. That's how it is, I think, as well. Has uh, you mentioned that you're trying to tie your personal story and share your research more? Has that been a motivation for you? Are you stepping outside some kind of comfort zone? Yes, yes, I think I am. Also, yeah, speaking about my own trauma and my own healing process is a is a is a big step out of my comfort zone. I think, uh, especially if you're a researcher, um, showing up as a full human human being and not just as uh, yeah this professional self um, for me it's important and it's part of my journey and it might not be for some of the psychedelic researchers and I understand their own reasons for it but I feel for me it is and my whole life actually I think has been about me finding uh, the courage um, to stand up for myself and to show up as my whole self and with all of my expressions because um, that was what I experienced in my family that I couldn't do it that I wasn't accepted that I couldn't talk about what actually was going on for me and yeah uh, that's that's how I want to be in the world and I, I don't want to keep up also an artificial barrier between my my more personal self and my professional self. So I, I hope that this is somehow possible, that I can still continue my professional life in an accepted way. <laughs> I think you're doing it. I think you're doing it now and you're kind of paving the way for showing. The reason other people aren't able to do it is because they're afraid. Everyone's got that, that self, but it's, We've built up an artifice around it. And especially if you're in a research and you need to be an authority, you need to, you know, and I think that for what it's worth, I think what you're doing is very brave and that maybe not other researchers, but other just regular people are going to resonate a lot more with you sharing your story and saying, oh, she's not some in an ivory tower uh, telling us all this is the way the world works. She's also a person who is struggling with various things just the way that I am. I think hopefully the world is moving more in that direction. Um, but yeah, slowly and each of us in yeah. our own ways, slowly, right? This is hard for right, me. Yeah. I can see that it's a challenge for you too, but rewarding, right? Yeah, <laughs> it feels better this way it, it does than the better. other way. Yeah. Yeah. more honest more true I don't know if you met um, were you at the retreat with Rupert the astrophysicist no no I wasn't you would probably remember if you did he was sort of on the line that same sign he's a he was a physicist and studying dark matter and stuff and he's also into spirituality and ayahuasca and I was talking to him I was like how do you reconcile these separate worlds that you're in of um, logic and scientific materialism and things like that with these experiences you're having and like is that frowned upon he's like yeah I keep it private but to be honest if you talk to most scientists if you get a couple beers in them they have they all have some 
sense of that awe, that spirituality, or a sense of we don't really understand anything at all and we're just making it up. Uh, he's like, it's very common. Just no one talks about it because we need to look professional. <laughs> that was very refreshing yeah. for me to hear from an actual physicist of like, yeah, we don't really know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very, very honest of him. Yeah. Uh, I think also astrophysicists are maybe among the scientists, certainly those who might be more into awe and uh I, at least that's what I see that the physicists often have this, at least at one point in their career, many of them have this shift into a more spiritual perspective. I mean, there were so, so many of the, the quantum physicists and, and also others, they, they are, they are interested in the same questions, right? The, as many yeah, spiritual seekers. And, yeah. Kind and of the so, fundamental basis of reality. Yeah. And, and also physics has gotten so weird that it's like, sometimes it's indistinguishable from spiritual talk of how weird it's getting. So yeah. we're both coming at it from a different angle, but like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's definitely an, an overlap and uh, yeah. But of course it's also how then the quantum uh, stuff is integrated into spirituality is also interesting to say at least. Uh, yeah. I can't I'm even sure. follow that. I see it used as yeah. a buzzword a lot of like quantum vibration meditation stuff. And I'm like, is this just nonsense or. Yeah. I mean, it's a label that's being used because it has more credibility, obviously. And than the spiritual or esoteric stuff. So I, I see it like that. They just uh, use the label and- To yeah. get some kind of um, authority or- Yeah, sense. yeah. yeah. I, I think that's mainly it. Uh, um, for sure it's about reality and it's the same reality here and there, but yeah. For me, it doesn't matter if you call it quantum or <laughs> whatever. Now I have to ask about this because this is another obsession of mine of you have a spiritual side. You also come from a scientific or research side. Do you, how do you feel about the general kind of blurring of the two and new agey stuff? Do you find it's easy to distinguish what is helpful and what is not? I don't always, I'm not always able, I, Sometimes I think things are total bullshit and there's other things I'm like, this is worth investigating, but I don't like the certainty and dogma that you're putting forth. Like even things like, I think everyone comes to it in a different sense, but I haven't fully reconciled what a chakra is and how the body energies work and stuff. And sometimes people speak with that with such authority that this is how it works. And like, how do you know? How do you know that your Reiki is working? I, I still struggle with some of those things. Do you as well? Not so much. Not, not with these uh, concepts or um, I, because I, I also had in, in one of my experiences, I also had a Kundalini awakening. Yeah. I've been reading about so, those. 
Yeah, so I really experienced how this energy goes through the chakras in your body. And before that experience, I also would have said, chakras, what's that? Show me that. Where do you have the proof? But yeah, the experience for me, it's I'm really very uh, experience focused in, in that sense. Uh, and that's for me a scientific approach, right? That you look uh, empirically what's there. And yeah, since I empirically experienced it myself, yes. for me, that's proof. And even though it's a subjective experience, it's hard when you, when you have that experience yourself, you accept the reality of it. So I, I can translate that to psychedelics. And I also, I've experienced on ayahuasca things like chakras and energy centers and, you know, my third eye just burning intensely and feeling energy. And I think, I guess what I'm learning now is to experience those things without a drug, which yeah. I, I believe is possible. And that spirituality and spiritual practices are methods to awaken those things. And now I'm more getting into that versus like, I'll just take the shortcut. I know this is going to work. <laughs> it, it takes a little more patience and dedication to experience them through breath work or meditation mm -hmm. or whatever it'll be. It sounds yeah. like you've been uh, practicing longer than I have. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I wasn't really practicing much. It just, yeah, happened. <laughs> yeah, it's like that for some people. And you don't really know yeah. why or when you'll have a certain experience. Yeah, and I didn't know about Kundalini and all of that stuff before. So I wasn't practicing to get it, right? But that just happened. Wow, I think that's very rare. I just read a, a book about... Uh, it's mostly about yoga from the Indian original Indian perspective, but it has some stuff about Kundalini and that, yeah, sometimes people just have those releases of that energy and it can be very disorienting from what I read. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Like what is happening I, to me? Yeah. I lost complete control of my body and it really feels like a foreign force is taking over and yeah, you have absolutely no, control and yeah it was really scary so wow uh yeah i i wouldn't recommend it <laughs> in a way um yeah i think you really have to be maybe it's better if you prepare and with the practices it's a slow process so you're like it's a slow awakening if the awakening of the kundalini is too extreme from one moment to the next, uh, I think that's getting really challenging. And then it's more of a spiritual emergency type of thing. And yeah. Doesn't necessarily sound desirable. No, <laughs> I, I think with, <laughs> I think with all of these things, um, maybe the mind imagines them as like exotic or superpowers superpowers yeah this city haunting uh you're like searching for the city powers yeah i think that's a that's the wrong direction cities it's, it's to translate for people who are familiar are they are sort of magical powers that gurus in india are said to possess such as uh summoning objects right other things 
and I've never levitation. I've never known how to feel about that of like, if that was true, wouldn't there be direct evidence? But I'm like, maybe, maybe not. Why would there be, why would there be a picture of a guy meditating or levitating? Yeah. Would he want that to be out? I don't know. Mm. It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility for me, but it also, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Yeah, for me at this point, I'm. Or it might not I'm be not an, really an intro. It's not an important question, really. Who cares? Yeah, for <laughs> me, it's not. Yeah, if I if I don't want it because I don't see the point, uh, I don't even care if it's possible or not. So. I yeah. know. Do you ever? Are you into Ramdas at all? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I had a big phase, and he at various points had talked about the cities and. Mm-hmm. you know confirmed that people really do have these and I don't have much reason to doubt his accounts he seems like a credible person to me so it's hard to square that with like but then again I'm like do I really care am I gonna investigate this further probably not yeah yeah I think so too it's it's yeah what's the point I don't see the point of it <laughs> be honest <laughs> I think the point is you just want to know like that that in a in itself is a kind of cool thing it forces you to reframe your worldview of like mm-hmm. okay there are people who really can levitate that means everything that I know needs to be reshuffled into a new model where people can levitate something about the way I understand the world must be wrong because people can levitate it comes from that same desire but what would that uh, what would that really reshuffle in your everyday life, or what would that change if you had the certainty exactly. levitation is possible? For me, it's like I've heard stories of people on LSD uh, talking about uh, or experiencing telepathy. Uh, so yeah, I'm for me. Yeah, why that? Why shouldn't that be possible? I I can totally imagine that this is possible uh, because I don't see minds as separate uh, in a way. So, yeah. But, I think your question of how does that change your day to day life is the important one. Of is that going to yeah. make you a more loving father, husband, mother, daughter? You know, is that who cares? <laughs> You're. Your spouse doesn't care that you can levitate or cannot levitate. I mean, with with telepathy, I I, I see the point more, you know, because you you understand, oh, there's communication on a deeper level going on here, and we can we can tap probably into these deeper levels, and that's opening up a space of possibility between human beings. But if it's just the levitation, it's 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 a very solitary, isolated experience. And yeah, it's, there's, what's the growth level in terms of you being in the world? How does, how does that fix any of our problems? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, shooting rockets into the sky, uh, millionaires, uh, yeah, going into space what what is the what does that solve it's it's the same thing for me yeah on a smaller scale or bigger scale have you depending you look at it telepathy is interesting i heard people in the psychedelic community say that there could have been um telepathic civilizations prior to us 
that they were based on, you know, communal plant medicine sharing, and they had a kind of extra sense that we no longer have because they were so in tune mm-hmm. with their environment and each other. Um, and that's a very interesting idea to me. How would we yeah. know? There's no way to prove it or disprove it. Um, but. Or maybe it's in the future. Maybe it's for in the future. humanity. <laughs> maybe that's what we're heading towards. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really glad take, we found take, the time take, for Taking this. my impulse. <laughs> it, it is refreshing. It gives me energy to go back and deal with my puppy. Mm. Is, is, she, is she here, the puppy? Yeah, do you Can want to see her? her? Yeah. Yeah. She's been very good. I gave her a big, long walk before this to tire her out. And she's just been waiting <laughs> right outside. So she'll be happy to come in. I'll be right back. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Oh. Hi, puppy. Hi. Oh. How it's old? Because I don't is... have my headphones on, but I can still kind of hear you through them. Okay. How old is the puppy? Four months. Four months. Oh my God. She's so big already. I know. And she just took wow. a big nap, so she's behaving well. I also want a puppy. (laughs) Oh, you should do it. It's so rewarding. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but it does make you grow. Mm. I need a growth boost, a puppy growth boost. Yeah, think about it. It was a, it was a big decision for me. Like I thought about it for a while, and there was a lot of emotion behind it. Of like, yeah, this is a a big next step for me. Yeah, you live alone, right? So, I do. Yeah, I actually also I'm I'm not in my apartment, but I'm at my husband's mother's house, and she also has a dog. I feel I want to go to the dog now immediately and pet it. <laughs> dogs are great they are kind of a gateway for emotions really for Mm -hmm. me I also came from like a a little bit of a numbed down repressed emotion couldn't express myself type of family but I always had dogs and that was kind of my Mm -hmm. way of feeling my emotions because the dog was always like yeah you can just be yourself (laughs) They are so accepting, right? It's yeah, so I, I, I had access to that place in myself around my dog. Uh-huh. And I think that also my other family members, we could share love for each other, not well, but we could share love for the dog very well. So it, it gave me, by extension, some of that warm, fuzzy feeling of mm-hmm. like, we may not express that we love each other, but we all really we love, love this dog. dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I think a lot of families are like that, American families at least, of like, uh, especially men, it's like, I don't know how to show my emotions, but I love this dog. <laughs> yeah. The unconditional love, right? The dog gives you no human can do that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.